welcome. My name's Egan Campbell from Palliative Care Australia in Canberra on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people. Welcome to Thursdays at 3, our regular series of conversations with people living and working at the end of life. Today, a real rock star of palliative care, Dr. Sien Siao. Welcome. Great to have you here. Thanks so much for having me, Ian. As the Research Chair in Palliative Care and Health System Innovation at McMaster University, Canada, Sien is focused on innovating health systems and improving quality of care. He'll be in Australia this September for the Oceanic Palliative Care Conference in Sydney. And of course, his time in Sydney for 23 OPCC coincides with the release of his brand new book, Hope for the Best, Plan for the Rest. Co-authored with Dr. Sammy Winemaker, the book is a guide for patients and families facing a life-changing diagnosis. In the meantime, Sien's wisdom is available in his long-running podcast series, The Waiting Room Revolution, and season six is rolling out now. Sien's passion is driven by his family's deeply personal story and his mum's end-of-life experience with breast cancer. Really looking forward to our conversation this afternoon, Sian. Thank you so much for your time. Sian, I'm in Canberra, Australia. You're in Canada. Our countries are great friends. We have a great history together. Indeed, there's a fantastic Canadian pub just down the road, not too far from where I'm sitting. Do we share similarities when it comes to our attitudes and our approach to death and dying? Australia is often described as a death-denying society. What about Canada? Is that something we have in common as well? That's a great question, Ian. I think there's two ways to answer that. I think as a, you know, what I have experienced um, in general society across all cultures, you know, are as humans, we are designed for survival and the idea of thinking and planning and ritualizing death is unique to our species. And yet I also think that at, in an, at an individual level, Everyone has different cultures, beliefs, and desires for what is important to them. And so on some level, I think um, the, pro you know, the challenges that the palliative care field faces is universal, but the solutions and how we can provide the best care possible for each and every patient is going to differ based on who we're seeing in front of us and the relationships and the systems that we have. What's your research, what's your wisdom told you about how we can be better at approaching this time of our lives. I guess there are perhaps two approaches. There's that community broad approach that tackles the, the taboos of, of our society, but there's also, I guess, an approach or an appeal to health professionals themselves around approaching this time of life better for their, their patients. What's your research tell you about the best way in, in tackling this, doing it better? That's a great question because what we have found is we have spent a lot of time focused on educating providers, which is, I think of it as a mountain, you know, there are a small number of our specialist providers who are teaching sort of generalist providers, trying to change their attitudes and, in, and invite people about end of life care earlier. And then there is the community approaches, um, you know, people like Catherine Mannix, compassionate communities who are yes. sort of pre-illness, death cafes and this whole movement, which is hugely important, activating the community. And I think the waiting room revolution and a lot of the opportunity lies in activating patients and families at the moment of diagnosis of a life-changing illness. That's where they are the most motivated to learn as much as they can about their illness and the big picture of their illness, which they may have for many, many years because of the modern marvels of medicine. Um, and it is, and the best way that we can provide the best care possible and this palliative approach to care is not just focusing on end of life. 
It is about understanding what people's values are from day one and using that in all their treatment decisions. And I think that is sort of a an open space for this palliative approach and the real way, opportunities of how we can go upstream and how we can integrate this early palliative care approach in the whole trajectory of care. As you say, there's a real conversation to have early in a diagnosis, but I, I also think, and you'd perhaps see this better than anyone, there's a great ripple effect that happens on the back of those conversations. It can be really empowering for life, whether you are living with a, 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 a terminal diagnosis or not. That sort of conversation, that sort of thinking can really supercharge your, your life or your approach to life. Yeah, I think what it, you know, for many of your listeners, I think, who work in the field of palliative care, you know, it's sort of a, it is a calling, we're drawn to it. But I think it reminds us about how much of this work is about the living and not about mm -hmm. the dying, and how each day has has meaning. And I think when you are in your final chapters, when you're faced with a life changing diagnosis, and, you know, th there are ones that we know will progress and get worse, and will eventually cause the end of our life or, you know, cause your death. But there are many years and days and moments in between that and the final breath. And so I, a lot of palliative care is about thinking of what that means to you and what you want to do with your time. And that's true for all of us, even if you don't yet have a, a serious chronic illness. You're here in September for the Oceanic Palliative Care Conference. As I mentioned before, it coincides with the release of your book, Hope for the Best, Plan for the Rest, that you've co-authored with Dr. Sammy Winemaker. Palliative care is a very, I guess, a very practical profession in many respects. People want to do things, take action. Uh, what are some of the actions or advice that, that come out in your book that you're keen to share with us at 23IPCC? Yeah, so what we did, what we learned is, we had originally thought that, look, we need to give everybody early palliative care. However, when we went to our users, to patients and families who was sort of the, our target audience, they said, we don't want early palliative care. And yet every study that I've been involved in and have read has shown there's a benefit of early palliative care. So what yes. we realized was that it's the language. It isn't what we're offering. It's how we're packaging it. And so what we did in this book was we deconstructed a palliative approach to care into seven keys, seven actions that every patient and family can take right from the moment of diagnosis if they so choose. And it is mostly about finding information and asking questions such as, you know, um, uh, walking two roads, which is the, our title, hoping for the best and planning for the rest, which doesn't, which basically means you don't have to give up hope when you start to think about and prepare about the what if scenarios. People think mm -hmm. it's planning for the worst, but it's not. It's planning for all the different likely options. And so that when things change in, in every illness, there is inevitable change. You aren't uh, scuppered, uh, unprepared. You haven't mm -hmm. sort of, you know, uh, have your plan in place. And so this is really an action plan um, with things, you know, patients, families wish they'd known, um, but didn't know to ask. And we've collected that from thousands of stories at the bedside and through our research, including from providers. As you say, repackaging palliative care, we, we've got an image problem in a way by the, by the sound of things. And um, you're wanting to, I guess, highlight the benefits that, that can flow from palliative care when you talk about repackaging palliative care. Yes, because um, it's really getting a leaching a palliative care approach without the labels. And mm -hmm. that is not to say that there's not a, a time and a place or even an opportunity to educate people about palliative care. But that doesn't have to be our opening, you know, our opening gambit. 
it can be meeting people where we're at, which is about asking them what's important to you, um, who have you brought with you, and how are they involved in your care? Your, mm -hmm. you know, the families who are critically important. And you know, what are you hoping for? What are you? What is your illness understanding? What do you understand about your illness? And would you like to know the chapters of this illness and how it will unfold? Which is not the same thing as do you want to know how much time you have left or our best guess at yep. that. So it's really about the the approach to care, leaching it out without the labels. And then as people uh, get more information, they come to understand they're, you know, they're not at the mercy of having a wonderful doctor who has lots of palliative care training or, you know, encountering that roadblock where you're not palliative yet. Because a palliative care approach is not a label. It's not a service. It's not a unit or a place. Um, it can be provided in all of those places. But really, it should be found everywhere, including in our communities, um, uh, you know, family doctors, all the uh, specialists. So, you know, our, the dream is to have every provider have the basics of palliative care training. But until that time comes, um, I think it behooves patients and families to know how to ask the questions so that they can take charge and get activated and get the best care possible, even if they meet a reluctant healthcare system. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a bit more about that and the, the, the health professionals that need that training that you, that you point to. How do we get health professionals across the line? How do we repackage palliative care for the health professionals that are leading these conversations, the doctors, the nurses, the allied health professionals? What do we need to do for those people who are leading these conversations in many respects? So I think, you know, this is some of the work that we've been trying to do here in Canada, and it's kind of in early stages, but there has been a lot of work to, to teach people scripts of how we can have, you know, introduce this topic of palliative care, and it does feel like it's a label, it's a handoff. And mm -hmm. I think if we can reframe it in the same way, and it is about good, skillful communication. You know what Catherine Mannix would talk about in this dance, you know, and every conversation has elements of uh, illness understanding, illness awareness, responding to emotion. And in many ways, the art of medicine has been trained out of clinicians because they're so focused on doing more with less time, you know, mm -hmm. showing no emotions is, is a sign of, of great strength. In some ways, the pendulum may be a swung too far and we need to go back to the humanity that patients and families want and actually clinicians want too. That's what they find rewarding, but has been sort of, you know, washed out or squeezed out. And so I think if we focus on skillful communication and leaning in to responding to emotion and silence and, open-ended questions, and even illness understanding at the most uh, broadest level. Like, can we assess what patients understand? That is the art of medicine. And mm -hmm. I think that is applicable to everyone. So I think it is about uh, packaging it and maybe, you know, focusing more on communication mm -hmm. skill building, not just a palliative care conversation. <laughs> it's communication all throughout the whole journey. Let's march on the capital, Sienna. It sounds very inspiring. Well, you know, I think I think there are models of how we can train and the literature actually is quite mixed about how we can do it well. But I, I think there are opportunities and I think there's a lot of interest. I think one of the biggest problems we're facing in healthcare is burnout and uh, the, the feeling that people uh, have lost the sight of, you know, why they got into medicine in the first place. And I think that is why many people who find palliative care love it, because they feel like that is what they were missing. They saw the whole person. Yeah. And I believe you know, the vast majority of clinicians want to see the whole person and provide the best care that they know how. And they're a bit lost of how to do that in our system. So I think skillful communication is a way that brings some of that in. And people always say, well, I can't have these one hour long conversations. But the thing is, once we do it upstream, 
the ripple effect of that is the conversations that flow from that aren't the same conversation. It's sort of like you're in the know, we say, and you're always in the know now, and your conversations are building on that. You don't have to repeat that. It's what happens Mm -hmm. is when we leave it all to the end. That's why they take so long. Yeah. Sian, let's talk about your family's personal experience, the the journey that your mum had, that your family had around your mum's breast cancer diagnosis really lit a wick under your work is really at the passion at the center of your 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 passion what do you take from your mum's experience your family's experience into your work well you know the thing is that stands out the most is throughout she had breast cancer when i was six and she Mm -hmm. she died when i was 10 and so in that four-year journey um, you know, there were times when she was in remission, there were times when she was getting first round chemotherapy, second round chemotherapy, but at no point did anybody talk to my father, to the other extended family who was very involved of what this would look like, those chapters of that illness throughout. And, at, and then in the final chapter, this idea that there, it, it will not get better. It has spread, uh, you know, to the lungs and this is, and this is what it will look like. They never used the word palliative care. We never received palliative care, that we got home care. And I think what really struck me is, you know, 30 years later in my research, I still hear patients tell me the same story, that no one used the word palliative care. They didn't know what that was. They were told, oh, you're not there yet. And really, they were just in the dark for that journey. Now, we had, you know, church and community helping us. We had extended family. um, And in some ways, you know, we were in, we you know, we had enough knowledge to, we should have been able to navigate the system and yet we were in the dark. So I feel like, you know, having heard so many stories of I wish I had known and why didn't anyone tell us that um, is what drove us to think of what is the solution and activating patients and families with the waiting room revolution was was our way because the, the ways that we teach clinicians and the knowledge that we have as palliative care providers in this field is so rich. But there's, mm-hmm. there's a patient-facing version of that. There's sort of like a ready-to-wear version that we can coach and teach uh, patients and families to ask and become a, like sort of a new patient coming to the system, like activated patients, activated healthcare providers. That's going to have the best outcomes. So mm-hmm. I think what I took away the most is the story is still the same. And we all know that dying is a part of living and we prepare for so many things uh, so well. Uh, you know, like sort of airplanes or airports are an example. You know, we have so many checks and balances. We all know what to do or or birth. You know, there's so many examples that we prepare weddings, every event we prepare. But yeah. for dying, we don't want to talk about it and we leave it, uh, it's you know, hidden. And yeah. and we leave it to, me, you know, movies to, to inform us of what it's going to look like, which, you know, obviously sensationalizes stuff. So I think there's a missed opportunity for us to, you know, this, it's not about death and dying. It's about being sick and that whole journey, because that's many, many, many years, you know, and I think that whole experience can be a positive or more positive one if we are more knowledgeable of how it's going to unfold and therefore we can plan and make it the way that we want it to be. Palliative care has a great role to play when it comes to grief and bereavement for the the, the people that are left behind, the loved ones that are left behind when someone when someone dies. Where were you at, your family at, with your own grief and bereavement given that your mum didn't have great access to, to palliative care, what impact did that have on you and your family when it comes to your grief and bereavement on the back of your mum's death? It's such a great question because I, and I, I, I want to just say that whenever I think of the, 
you know, the ripple effect while the illness is happening, but there's a ripple effect after when it is a negative experience, people carry that. And, mm -hmm. you know, for years and years, it leads to yeah. all different kinds of issues that pop up. And, it, and the opposite is true. When it is more positive, people can move on faster. They can find, um, you know, meaning again, they can, you know, continue on with the relationships and continue living in a different way. But, you know, I think for our family, I think that it, it, I have a brother who's older. I have my father. I have extended family. I think it hit us differently. Um, I was the youngest. And in some ways, my mother was sort of preparing us, preparing me. We had had some conversations such as if I'm ever not here, you know, I want you to uh, have a good relationship with your father and this and that. Um, and so I don't know. I think maybe in some ways the whole time that in her mind, of course, I. this is the thing. Patients, clinicians always fear that patients are think they don't want to bring it up because they're scared they're going to take away hope. Yeah. But patients think about this every single second of every single day that this they have, you know, an illness that could take their life. And what does that mean? And they're so scared about it. So so it's it's always ironic to me that they would say, well, we don't want to talk about it because we think it will make them, you know, uh, scared or or depressed and yet they already are thinking about it so i think my mom in some way was preparing all of us but um you know for my brother and dad i think it took them longer to accept and understand and to take the next steps because um maybe they just you know everyone grieves differently so i really i really think that by by having it happen so suddenly um it was it, it it robbed them from the time this anticipatory yeah. grief to really think about what matters. And I'll just share with you that you know, for example, my father was still holding on to the idea that you um you know if she had, we if we tried harder, if we accomplished more and won more awards at school or in in Boy Scouts, like she would just have more will to live. But you know, looking back, I mean, it's I mean maybe I understand this is just maybe part of how he he was grieving, but I don't think. My mom didn't have enough will to live. Of course, she would yeah. have wanted to live, yeah. but it just she didn't have a choice. The cancer was was going to take her life. So, so these are just it just you know that's how. But that is how he was dealing with it. But maybe if he had, you know, had understood that these were mm -hmm. the final days and weeks or months, maybe he would have left work and not you know spent you know as much. He would have pulled us out of school. You know things like that. Yeah. So I yeah. think we maybe we would have made different choices or at least talked about what this means and had closure. I guess. Is your your dad still alive? Have you had a chance to to talk this through with him? Yeah, my dad is still alive. Um, yeah, I, he lives nearby. I see him very often, which is a blessing. He is a prostate cancer survivor, um, five years and counting. And yeah, I think you know, I I uh, I don't know if we really talk about how he 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 grieves. I just mm -hmm. think that obviously he, um, you know, he. He never remarried. He never really dated after. He just focused all his attention on my my brother and myself. And so I had always known he would have to take, you know, he took up both roles as mother and father and has, um, you know, always been very proud and focused on that. He did change uh, in, t in how he parented, I would say, after my mom passed away. Yeah. You know, he used to be very strict and now he's maybe less so. But but uh, I, I know my mom is always going to be the love of his life. And you know, he still holds on very, you know, dearly to our memory and um, will always think of of us, my brother and I, as the children that they both raised in, in the way that she would have wanted. Mm -hmm. So I I think um, I think that is why it's important to to talk about what's important to you so that the memory that he's honoring or thinking about feels like, you know, there wasn't sort of this idea that he's caught in this in this 
this choice of did I do the right thing and would she have wanted it this way and that kind of thing. So um, I think, yeah, I think whenever we have the opportunity to talk about life in, in reality rather than in this hopeful, you know, wishful place of, of not ever getting sick, um, it's always better to make plans in, in reality, I think. Yeah. I really appreciate you sharing that experience and, and honouring your mum and your family's experience. And we'll do that again at OPCC in, in September in Sydney. Um, Sian, I'm keen to check in with you about voluntary assisted dying. Um, Canada is, is further down the path than Australia is. And indeed, this September, um, voluntary assisted dying will, will be a conversation we have at OPCC. And it's very much, a, a, I guess, a, a conversation that the palliative care sector here in Australia is coming to terms with, and indeed the wider community is coming to terms with. Still very new here in Australia. Where are you at in terms of that conversation, that understanding of voluntary assisted dying and, and, and palliative care in, in, in Canada? Where are things at for you guys? It's Wow, that is a really big question. And to be really clear, I'm not a clinician, and so I think of this sort of as an academic person, as a public person. But yeah. I would say that... What I have come to think of this is that um, many palliative care providers, uh, you know, there are some who who want to do what's best for their patient and put their personal beliefs aside, um, and then others who are, you know, have you know moral or religious objections. And I think there is room for all of that. Yes. I think there, you know, and, and we're so passionate. I think where we have common ground is that we believe that people should get the best care. And a, what I believe is a palliative approach to care as early as possible, because the earlier that they're in the know and are making decisions that are fully informed and not based in this sort of uh, wishful thinking, I, um, I like to think, then I think we can feel better that they're doing this for the right reasons. I think there is a fear that because access to palliative care or specialist palliative care, because that is the primary way that people get it, is limited. We are concerned as a field that people are making decisions without, you know, knowing that they can get good symptom management, they can get care at home, or that, you know, the system couldn't afford it for that person. And that's not the society we want to live in. But mm -hmm. if we were more confident that actually they did have access to, whether it was by a specialist or a generalist, but they did have access to the best symptom management, that um, they are aware of all the choices and are making informed decisions because they know the trade-offs they're making. And it's not because they didn't know that they could do this or that, but they actually chose not to do that for for their personal reasons. I think we could feel better that that's an individual decision on the patient. And maybe the provider may or may not make that. But at some point, that's a personal decision that everyone has to make. And it is already legal. So this isn't a question of, of le legality. I think we need to have safeguards to make sure that it's not abused, that people aren't coerced. But and And really the idea of having full information up front because we we do experience and see on the front lines that there are patients who are making choices out of fear fear that dying looks like this um that they don't understand what natural dying is or that they didn't have enough support you know like home care or pain management um and that's not and that probably isn't if they had known they could um you know, hold off and, and try these things out, maybe they would make different decisions. In fact, I think many providers have experienced before it was legal that they would say, well, I can offer you this. And then they go, okay, well, I, um, I want that first, but I do want to know I have the choice, but I do want to try out these other options first. Mm -hmm. Great to be able to share your work and 
wisdom through Thursdays at three. And indeed, we'll dive in deeper at OPCC in Sydney in September. Your 2021 OPCC lecture had such an impact. It was, it was all online. Of course, they were the dark days of, of COVID and the, the pandemic. So many people are looking forward to seeing you face-to-face -face for 23 OPCC. What are you looking forward to about coming to Sydney, coming to the Oceanic Palliative Care Conference? Oh, I love Australia. My wife and I had our honeymoon in Australia. And yeah. so we're coming back without our kids. So it will be like a second honeymoon. Um, but we love Sydney and, uh, you know, the Opera House and the Darling Harbour and the people are wonderful. So it will be so amazing to feel the energy of people who are passionate about improving the lives of, of patients and their families who are facing a life-changing uh, illness and, a, you know, a serious illness and to learn from one another is, it's just, you know, such a wonderful experience. So it will be just so nice to talk to other people who are passionate about this and share our learnings across the system and find ways to make things better because, you know, for as we know that there are solutions and how do we imp impact them and move the needle, we have to work together. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for your time. Looking forward to meeting you face-to-face -face this September in Sydney. Thank you. Thank you, Ian. A pleasure. Dr. Cien Siao, Research Chair in Palliative Care and Health System Innovation at McMaster University, Canada. You can catch up with Cien again this September in Sydney at OPCC. Registrations are now open and you'll find a link in the show notes. Thanks for tuning in to Thursdays at 3, whether that's via PCA Socials or Spotify and engaging with matters of life and death. You'll find advice, tools and support at the Palliative Care Australia website, where you can also make a donation to support our work. See you next Thursday. Ta-da.